You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Ad-free, ad-free, ad-free. There is a half-decent chance that you're listening to this episode early and ad-free right now. And if you're not, you should know you could be. That's right, I'm reorganizing our Patreon page over the next month or so with new benefits and better, more succinct explanations. But the key change is already live now, ad-free episodes. So let me explain how it works and then we'll get to business. If you go to patreon.com slash the constant and sign up to support the show for $2 an episode, you'll get access to the constant secret feed. Up until today, that meant you received bonus episodes and content every month. But as of right now, I will also be dropping new episodes into the feed ad-free for your listening enjoyment. And whenever time allows, that is a hell of a caveat, I will drop them in early. I know the show has picked up a lot more sponsorships lately, specifically since we moved to Airwave, and I know that some people find that annoying. Unfortunately, it is also necessary for keeping the show going. So my hope is that this will be a good compromise for everyone. If you're a casual listener who doesn't care about commercials and doesn't want to get bonus content, then you needn't lift a finger, although I hope you will tell a friend or two, please. But if you want to cut out the chaff, get some extras, and help support this show in a deeper way, well, you can get that stew going right now by going to patreon.com slash the constant to sign up. And to all of you who already have and are listening through the secret feed right now, thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy. And I hope I didn't fuck anything up. On with the show! You, me, let's try to make some money, Mad Money! Hey, I'm Kramer! Welcome to Mad Money! Welcome to Kramerica! Other people want to make friends, different channel. I just want to make you money! On the March 11th, 2008 edition of Mad Money... Jim Cramer fielded a question. Okay, Peter writes, should I be worried about Bear Stearns in terms of liquidity and get my money out of there? No, no, no. Bear Stearns is fine. Do not take your money out. This is really, look, if there's one takeaway other than a plus 400 somebody, Bear Stearns is not in trouble. I mean, if anything, they're more likely to be taken over. Don't move your money from Bear. That's just being silly. Don't be silly. As bad advice goes, Cramer's was worse than most. Three days later... Okay, just so you get a sense of what's causing the agony by this point, I know you've been talking about it. It's financials led by Bear Stearns after what essentially is a bailout from the Fed. Bear Stearns shares are down 90% this morning, and it's not just Bear. Pretty much every single bank is plunging in early trade this morning. 
Soon enough, Kramer was screaming a different it's tune. Time to be an academic. It is time to get on the Bear Stearns call. Listen, open the darn Fed window. He has no idea how bad it is out there. He has no idea. He has no idea. Kramer. I have talked to the heads of almost every single one of these firms in the last 72 hours, and he has no idea what it's like out there. None. And Bill Poole has no idea what it's like out there. My people have been in this game for 25 years, and they are losing their jobs, and these firms are going to go out of business, and he's nuts. They're nuts. They know nothing. And so was everyone else. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Two-year no yields went from 190 to 166 in the blink of an eye. And the Nasdaq, everything and more has been completely wiped out. It was the worst day on Wall Street since the crash of 1987. From the financial capital of the world, the opening bell is going to ring in uh, five seconds. And to be honest with you, we wish it wouldn't. Traders here working the phone say a lot of their customers are freaked out, waiting to see how low the Dow will go. They're focused on the Dow, not so focused on OPEC. Yes, OPEC did cut production by one and a half million barrels per day. Really, you're seeing just broad-based declines across all of the major technology sectors. Apple's under pressure. By September 15th, employees at Lehman Brothers were pulling copper wiring out of the walls on their way out the door as one of the largest investment banks in the world collapsed. The next day, the Fed bought out one of the other largest investment banks, AIG, in an effort to avert a global economic crash. It didn't quite work. The stock market is now down 21%. Because we're now down 43%. Day after day, more and more banks went belly up, were bought out, or barely managed to stave off death by federal action. Everything and more has been completely wiped out. The market collapsed. We've had an eight-day losing streak in the Dow that in percentage terms puts it on par, close to the loss suffered in that crash in 1987, close to that percentage loss those two days in 1929. And collapsed again, and collapsed some more. Call it what you will. The Great Recession, the 2008 financial crisis, the subprime mortgage crisis, whatever it was, by September it was fully raging. The problem spread across the globe. What started in America last year has now spread to every part of the world. We're down 9% today. The Zetrodax over in Frankfurt. And while governments, reserve banks, and private industry threw everything they could at the wall hoping to stem the damage, a new cottage industry was born. The how did this happen market? Documentaries, share prices continued to tumble, Lehman Brothers radio segments, podcasts. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass, and today's show is a special co-production we're doing with NPR News, your place of employment, Adam. Very proudly so. You and Alex Bloomberg are going to be explaining step by step how this all worked, and we will meet some of the people who created this economic disaster and so um, let me turn the show over to the two of you, which is great for me because I've pretty much lost my voice anyway. And um, Alex, Alex Bloomberg, will kick things off. Even an Oscar-winning feature film. Michael, how are you? I found something really interesting. The whole housing market is propped up on these bad loans. They will fail. The housing market is rock solid. It's a time bomb. So Mike Burry, who gets his hair cut at Supercuts and doesn't wear shoes, knows more than Alan Greenspan. Dr. Mike Burry, yes, he does. (laughs) 
You know what? I'm pissed off. American people. The gist of it, they all agreed, was that everything had gone wrong. And nobody, besides Steve Carell and Christian Bale, had seen it coming. There's some shady stuff going down. As the housing sector boomed throughout the first years of the new millennium, investment markets became totally enraptured with mortgages. A variety of products were created, packaged, and sold by banks in order to capitalize on all the money going into home ownership. And as time went on, those largely unregulated products got dicier and dicier. But the diciness cut both ways. At the same time that mortgage-backed products were getting wilder, so too were the mortgages themselves. Standards for getting a mortgage were relaxed, and home buyers were pushed into properties they couldn't afford. Mortgages were furnished with low introductory rates that shot up after a year or two, ensuring that lots of people would suddenly find themselves underwater. And those underwater mortgages were hidden in the complicated stew of securities being sold and leveraged across the financial sector. Once those introductory rates phased out, the real estate market was hit by a bankruptcy crisis, which then rolled uphill to the investment banks, who didn't have the necessary leverage to brave the storm, leading to a lack of liquidity, a pullout by investors, and a total breakdown of the financial system. And nobody saw it coming, besides Steve Carell and Christian Bale, who kept their suspicions close to the vest. Instead of warning the world of what was coming, they shorted the housing market and made off from the crisis like bandits. Hardly heroes, but there were no heroes. Almost nobody saw it coming, and nobody who did see it coming told the rest of us. That's not exactly true, though. One of the many, many factors contributing to the subprime crisis was the issue of regulatory capture. People whose jobs it was to ring the alarm bell were either asleep on the job, corrupted by the interests they were supposed to be guarding, or ideologically blinded to the possibilities. But there were a few regulators out there who had been trying to warn everyone, and not low-level ones either. Almost a year to the day, before Jim Cramer misadvised poor Peter not to move his money from Bear Stearns, America's top banking policy official, a member of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, put out a warning that they were beginning to see missed payments and foreclosures on mortgages as their introductory rates expired, and warned that this was just the tip of the iceberg. To quote from a risk management speech given in Charlotte, North Carolina on March 8, 2007, What's coming is the front end of this wave of teaser rate loans that are coming into full pricing. So what we're seeing in this narrow segment is the beginning of the wave. This is not the end. This is the beginning. A year earlier, the newly seated chair of the U.S. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, whose job it was to secure banking stability, issued a similar caution. Investment banks are getting in too deep with predatory loan practices and urged them to fix rates at their introductory levels, not just to stave off bankruptcies among homeowners, but the banks themselves. And all the way back in the mid-1990s, the chair of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission was lobbying Congress to give the CFTC oversight and regulatory authority over off-exchange derivative markets like mortgage-backed securities, precisely because of the possibility of the exact chain of events that precipitated the financial crisis a decade later. Instead, Congress passed a law that did precisely the opposite. 
explicitly barring CFTC from regulating derivatives, and the chair resigned in protest. Everything about the 2008 financial crisis is complicated, and any attempt to pin down the particulars tends to fail. That includes trying to figure out why precisely the warnings of three of the top financial regulators in the United States, the chair of the CFTC, the chair of the FDIC, and the top banking expert of the Board of Governors for the Federal Reserve, weren't heeded. There was a blind faith in the wisdom of markets to contend with and the general lack of attention and resources given to regulators writ large, not to mention that regulatory capture I mentioned, where regulators had financial and professional incentives to go along to get along, sometimes because the very banks they were supposed to be overseeing were also paying their bills, and other times because they were offering them lucrative jobs which would pay their bills down the line. There's at least one more factor to consider, though, when looking at why those three top experts were so totally ignored, even as they gave speeches, lobbied presidents, clashed with their bosses, went on television, and even wrote editorials for the New York Times. All three of them were women. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. We spend a majority of our time talking about the mistakes of dead white men, in part because of how many consequential mistakes they've made, and in part because someday I shall be one of them. But this week we're talking about one of the largest, long-lasting, and pervasive errors of human history, which still lives strong today. Susan Bies, member of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, Sheila Baer, chair of the FDIC, and Brooks Lee Bourne, chair of the CFTC, are but three of a countless number of people whose contributions, knowledge, insights, and hard work were and are ignored, contradicted, or usurped for the simple reason that they are female. A full accounting of those who have suffered likewise would be not just impractical but impossible because their names number in the billions. Even the most conspicuous examples are too numerous to mention. So, I have put together a series of vignettes that are merely and hopefully illustrative of the greater issue. A tiny speck of sand along an endless beach of error. Today's episode, Cassandra's. The most profound difficulty of looking into this topic is that it is, at heart, a story of absence. The true, hulking, crushing weight of the issue exists in the women who weren't allowed to study, to learn, to speak, to discover. It's about what can't be seen. And how can you measure that? In the late 1970s, Dr. Vera Rubin was confronting an analogous problem. By that point, Rubin was on to her fifth subject of focus, in large part because she'd been ignored or overlooked at the first four. She'd been interested in the stars since she was a little girl, looking out her Washington, D.C. bedroom window at night. She received a scholarship to attend Vassar, but was urged by her high school physics teacher to switch to art, or music, or something, anything but science. 
as long as you stay away from science, he told her, you should do okay. Science, though, was what she wanted. She received her bachelor's in it and then began hunting for a graduate school. Her first choice was Princeton, but they didn't accept women, so she eventually ended up at Cornell with her husband, the mathematician Robert Rubin. While searching around for a thesis, Vera Rubin made her first revolutionary discovery. I think that's a pun, but it's obscure enough that it shouldn't upset anyone too much. Rubin discovered that galaxies, rather than being randomly spread out throughout space, were more aligned along a plane, what we now call the supergalactic plane, and theorized, as it turns out incorrectly, but that's science for you, that they were orbiting a central point, or pole, the way the planets in our system revolve around the sun. Because she was a woman, and pregnant, no less, she was initially barred from giving her results at the American Astronomical Society. When she finally did present her paper, titled Rotation of the Universe, she was greeted with a flurry of comments, questions, and criticisms. To her memory, not a single one was complimentary, and the paper was never published. By the time she returned to school at Georgetown to get her PhD, the supergalactic plane had been accepted by science by dint of a slew of observations and papers made by men. No one credited Rubin an inch. And so she figured that she deserved obscurity that she wasn't yet a real astronomer, but she wasn't finished trying to become one. She got her doctorate at Georgetown and then stuck around to teach for a few years before landing a job at the Carnegie Institute's Department of Terrestrial Magnetism, where she hoped to do some real science. She teamed up with Kent Ford, an astronomer who'd been there for a decade and who had developed a fancy new imaging tube spectrometer. Before Ford, most spectrometers could give you an idea of the makeup of a galaxy, this much helium, this much hydrogen, etc. But Ford's could do one better. He could aim it not at a whole galaxy, but at a small part of that galaxy. Rubin and Ford thought that together they could use his imaging tube to work on quasars, but soon realized they were up a creek. Quasars were the hottest thing in astronomy at the time. They'd only been conclusively discovered three years earlier by Martin Schmidt, and everybody wanted to figure out what exactly they were. Schmidt had shown that quasars were super distant, way outside the local group, and Rubin and Ford didn't have regular access to a telescope of the power necessary to study them. They had to request it from people with whom they were competing, and quickly realized that they didn't stand a chance of getting by that competition that way. After about a year or two, she told astronomer and novelist Alan Lightman, it was very, very clear to me that that was not the way I wanted to work. I decided to pick a problem that I could go observing and making headway on, hopefully a problem that people would be interested in, but not so interested in that anyone would bother me before I was done. You ever heard about a submarine in the Chicago River, Vera? The search for a Goldilocks question in astronomy led Rubin back to looking at galaxies. At the time, it was understood that galaxies rotated, but just how they did so was purely theoretical. Nobody had actually measured them, because they didn't have a spectrometer that could focus small enough to do so. Rubin and Ford did. Rubin picked the Andromeda galaxy as her target. Andromeda is the nearest to the Milky Way, which made it the nearest to Earth, and therefore the nearest to Vera Rubin. On a clear night away from city lights, you can see Andromeda with the naked eye, which meant she wouldn't need such a high-tech telescope to study it. 
Instead, Reuben and Ford began their observations out of Flagstaff, Arizona, where Percival Lowell had established an observatory in 1894 in order to prove that there were canals on Mars, which we talked about on our 2019 episode, Is There Life on Mars? The whole point of the job was that they didn't know exactly what they'd find, but they had a vague idea. Galaxies ought to rotate approximately like solar systems do. Mercury the planet closest to the Sun, rotates at a far greater speed than Neptune, which is the farthest. And in between, the same basic logic holds. Venus rotates faster than Earth, which rotates faster than Mars, which rotates faster than Jupiter, and so on. The Sun is a pivot point, the center of mass in the solar system, and gravity's effects are stronger the closer you get to that center. Galaxies also get more dense at the center and decrease as you work your way out. So however precisely they rotate, astronomers figured they ought to be more or less similar to our solar system. Rubin and Ford soon found that they weren't. As they worked the spectrometer outward from the center of Andromeda, the results showed that the whole of the great spiral galaxy, from center to edge, was spinning at the same rate. For years, they collected data, and all of it said the same thing. The rotation of Andromeda was uniform. Then they moved on to other galaxies, and each one showed the same thing. Somehow, for some reason, galaxies weren't following the law of gravity. Months were taken up in trying to understand what I was looking at, Rubin said. She wrote all the data down, longhand, on paper, to be able to look it through. And then she saw it. There are two factors to orbital speed, gravity and mass. Gravity wasn't the reason her results were so weird. Mass was. There must be more of it, she realized, than meets the eye. Dr. Vera Rubin had just found dark matter. It's safe to call it the most important astrophysical discovery of the latter half of the 20th century. Her new results were accepted without nearly as much friction as those she made early in her career. Still, she never received a Nobel Prize. It's a baffling omission by the committee, especially so when you know that a number of prominent physicists and astronomers lobbied for years to get her the honor. Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein even tried to organize a boycott urging men to reject the prize until Rubin got her due. They didn't. Dr. Vera Rubin died in 2016 of complications to dementia. At the time of her death, no woman had received a Nobel in physics since Maria Gopert Mayer in 1963. And Mayer was just the second female winner in the award's history, with Marie Curie being the first. Since 2016, two women have received Nobels for physics. Donna Strickland for the practical implementation of chirped pulse amplification lasers, and Andrea Ghez, who discovered a supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way, an achievement which, in more ways than one, rests upon the work of Vera Rubin. While even now we still don't have much of an idea of what dark matter is, we do have a pretty good idea how much there is. And it's a lot. By looking at how galaxies rotate, and by how light passing nearby galaxies bends, astronomers have concluded 
that whatever dark matter is, it makes up something like 85% of all matter in the universe. All that potential, all that importance, all that mass, and nobody knew it until Vera Rubin. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. How well would you take care of your car if you had to keep the same one your entire life? That's how our brains work, so why don't we treat them that way? How we care for our minds affects how we experience life, so it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. There are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, like learning a new language or taking power naps. There's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. I think therapy is like general maintenance for your well-being. It's something that everyone stands to benefit from. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash the constant. That's betterhelp.com slash the constant. We're driven by what ifs. What if hiring didn't have to be so hard? What if finding someone great could be as easy as asking them to apply? What if your dream hiring platform already exists? You need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find great talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. I like how Indeed helps star applicants to shine with over 135 assessment tests from cooking to coding. Even better, Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner, delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest 2019. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash the constant. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash the constant. Indeed.com slash the constant. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And there is that sound again. It's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business, so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. Scaling your business is a journey of endless possibility. Believe me, when this show started out, I was scraping together sponsorships from old friends and random emails. Today, we have internationally renowned businesses like Masterclass, Indeed, and of course, Shopify. 
Like mine, Shopify powers millions of businesses from first sale to full scale. Reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. Gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash the constant, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash the constant right now. Shopify.com slash the constant. When I hear the word leprosy, I think of the Bible, particularly the book of Matthew. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him. I am willing. Be cleansed. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. See that you tell no one, but go your way. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Jesus curing leprosy is one of the more striking and telling miracles of the Gospels because it's more than just a miracle, more than the power of God to cure a disease. It's a show that Jesus cared for and considered even those people whom society had cast aside. In the whole of the Old and New Testaments, leprosy is mentioned nearly 70 times, but until the Synoptic Gospels, those mentions have a very different tenor. In the book of Leviticus, for instance, there's a whole chapter dedicated to the proper, godly procedure for leprosy. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. When a man has on the skin of his body a swelling, a scab, or a bright spot, and it becomes on the skin of his body like a leprous sore. Then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest, or to one of his sons the priests. The priest shall examine the sore on the skin of the body, and if the hair on the sore has turned white, and the sore appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a leprous sore. Then the priest shall examine him, and pronounce him unclean. It's very detailed. But if the bright spot is white on the skin of his body and does not appear to be deeper than the skin and its hair has not turned white, then the priest shall isolate the one who has the sore seven days. And the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And indeed, if the sore appears to be as it was and the sore has not spread on the skin, then the priest shall isolate him another seven days. As in... This reading goes on for more than 11 minutes, detailed. Then the priest shall examine him again on the seventh day. And indeed, if the sore has faded and the sore has not spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only a scab, and he shall wash his clothes and be clean. Now, the Bible uses a term for people afflicted with leprosy, which advocates say is stigmatizing. And of course, they're right. It's literally a word synonymous with stigma. So it's best to be avoided, but we'll need to let Leviticus say it this once to really understand the Old Testament sentiment. Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. 
he shall be unclean. All the days he has the saw, he shall be unclean. He is unclean, and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. The Levitical laws on leprosy obviously point to a shaky but grasping attempt to understand diagnosis and contagion. But inherent to those attempts was an assumption that the disease was a curse, a sign of sin, a reason to cast out the sick, not just to protect the healthy, but as a punishment. And I should note that there is quite a lot of debate about whether the leprosy of the Old Testament is the same disease as the leprosy of the New Testament, and still further debate about whether either of those are the same as the disease known as leprosy or Hansen's disease today. But for our purposes, the distinction is rather moot. Because the biblical mentions of leprosy, whatever precisely that word means, illustrate two important and indisputable facts— that leprosy has long been with humanity for at least the better part of 3,000 years, and that for most of that time, in most places, its victims were viewed with revulsion. And although Jesus Christ famously treated them, healed them, walked among them, most of Christian history still somehow missed the point. The early Catholic Church declared people afflicted by leprosy heretics on several different occasions, and orders of banishment, expulsion, and shunning persisted commonly up until, well, it's hard to say that they ever actually stopped, really. One of the many terrible ironies about the cultural and religious handling of leprosy is that while it's easy to understand or justify all this stigma as being a byproduct of attempts to quell the spread of the disease, the disease itself is not very contagious. In fact, while we know it can spread person to person, we're not entirely confident how, even today. It seems that leprosy is transmitted through mucus or spit, like a common cold. But it's pretty hard to get even that way, maybe because, unlike the common cold, leprosy doesn't typically cause congestion, runny nose, or coughing. Whatever the precise constellation of reasons, it generally requires very long, frequent, and close contact for leprosy to spread from one person to another. But that was certainly not the impression people had. Even well into the 20th century, leprosy was understood to be extremely contagious, and those affected were often mandated to live in isolated colonies, with barely any treatment and no chance of recovery. In a very real sense, the law of the land hadn't changed since Leviticus. When I say barely any treatment, I mean it. From the 1500s onward, European doctors treated leprosy with the same kind of wanton medical malpractice that they always tended to, the main drug being quicksilver or mercury, which, I probably don't have to say it, not only didn't cure leprosy, but caused heavy metal poisoning. On the Indian subcontinent, things were tantalizingly, yet frustratingly, better. A very similar sort of social and religious stigma reigned, but there was a much better treatment around than mercury. Since at least the 1300s, the oil of the seeds of the Chalmugra tree were used to treat leprosy and other skin lesions. And not only did that not cause heavy metal poisoning, it actually helped. But just barely. By the early 20th century, chemists understood that Chalmugra seed oil contained hydnocarpic acid, which could slow or even reverse the progress of the bacteria which causes leprosy. But could was the key word. The problem was delivery. 
Doctors could try to give it orally, but the oil was so acrid that it tended to induce immediate vomiting. It was so tacky that it was difficult to even apply topically. And when they tried to inject it into patients, the thing that should have been most useful, the oil gummed up into hard, immovable, insolvent balls that just sat beneath the skin, painful and useless. A real treatment was just within reach, but no one could reach it. And then came Alice Ball. Alice Augusta Ball was born in 1892 Seattle, the third child of James and Laura Ball, two of the most prominent and respected members of Seattle's black community. James was a lawyer and the editor of the Seattle branch of the Colored Citizen newspaper. Both James and Laura worked as photographers, and so did James's father, James Presley Ball, who was one of the most important early photographers in America. They had a dark room in the family home, and it's there that Alice first became interested in chemistry. In 1912, she graduated with a BS in pharmaceutical chemistry from the University of Washington and stayed on for another bachelor's in pharmacy, which she achieved in 1914. While there isn't a lot of detailed biographical information about Alice Ball out there, the outline that does exist shows that she was exceptional. While still at Washington, she was a named author in a scientific article published in the Journal of the American Chemical Society, a rare enough thing for an undergraduate, but virtually unheard of for a black undergraduate or a female undergraduate, let alone both. The article was one of several fortuitous coincidences that would lead her to the Chalmugra oil problem. It showed an uncommon level of expertise with dissolving difficult chemicals into usable solutions, the sort of insight she first started to gain watching her parents and grandfather working to produce photographs. In 1903, James Presley Ball's health had begun to fail, and the family picked up stakes and moved to Hawaii in hopes that the fair weather would aid his healing. Unfortunately, it had not, and Alice's grandfather died within the year. But after her second degree from the University of Washington, Alice Ball returned to Hawaii for graduate work. In 1915, she became both the first woman and the first African-American to graduate with a master's in chemistry from the University of Hawaii, and then, almost immediately, became the first woman and the first African-American to teach chemistry there. Hawaii was something like the American epicenter for leprosy. The same hospitable climate that had drawn Alice's grandfather there in 1903 was figured to be good for leprosy, too. More critically, and tragically, native Hawaiians had been entirely unexposed to the disease up until the European and Asian sailors made contact, and without any pre-existing immunity, leprosy had hit hard on the islands. In 1866, the legislature had opened a quarantine colony on a remote peninsula on the northern side of the island of Molokai. Anyone diagnosed with leprosy was declared dead and sent there for permanent exile without any opportunity to ever leave or receive visitors. By the time Alice Ball came to Hawaii, the colony had evolved to include an official government institution, the United States Leprosy Investigation Station at which Dr. Harry T. Hallman was still hoping to see a breakthrough with Chalmugra oil. Hallman turned the question over to Ball. 
Could she produce an efficient, injectable leprosy treatment out of the frustratingly inefficient and uninjectable oil? Alice Ball was 23 years old and tasked with overcoming one of humanity's oldest and most infamous of pathogens. And she didn't disappoint. She first developed a way to basically turn the fatty parts of the oil into ethyl alcohol, while still preserving the effective part of the drug. She then developed a system of acidifying and purifying the solution, and then, finally, converting it into a concentrated, effective, injectable solution. And it worked. Hallman deployed the new treatment, and in 1922, wrote an article for the Archives of Dermatology and Syphilology in which he declared, Since the establishment of the treatment of leprosy by the ethyl esters of Chalmugra oil, 84 patients have become bacteriologically negative and free from all lesions of the disease, and have been discharged from segregation. As in the Gospels, leprosy was being cured, and the previously afflicted welcomed back into the world. But by then, Alice Ball was dead. There's some disagreement on what happened, but the most likely cause was chlorine gas, accidentally inhaled during a demonstration to one of her chemistry classes. For some reason, it seems her gas mask had failed. She hadn't just developed the first effective treatment for leprosy, she developed it as her lungs, were painfully cracking and failing. She died on New Year's Eve, 1916, at just 24 years of age. By that time, the treatment had been more or less perfected, but Ball hadn't had time to finish testing or to publish her results. When she passed, the dean of the chemistry department, whose name, only a little bit confusingly, was Arthur Dean, picked up where she had left off and finished the research trials on her behalf. No. No, that's not what happened. That's what should have happened. Arthur Dean did indeed finish the trials and publish the results, but when he did so, he took credit for the process himself and didn't mention Alice Ball's name or work once in his entire corpus. He called her process the Dean Method. Harry Hallman understood what was happening, and he wouldn't stand for it. It was thanks to Alice that he was able to improve the lives of so many patients, and he attempted to tell the world. He didn't have much luck, though. Faced with the question of Ball's contributions, Dean claimed that, sure, she'd gotten the ball rolling, but it was his work that had actually made the treatment function. Hallman shot back in a second 1922 article, saying that Dean had offered no improvement at all. In fact, he said, what changes Dean had made only served to make the treatment more difficult to synthesize and less stable. He went out of his way to call it Ball's Method. But he couldn't make a dent. Dean was a prominent chemist, an academic, who soon became president of the university, whereas Holman was a junior surgeon employed by a government leprosy colony. And Alice Ball, well, she was dead. For the next 50 years, Arthur Dean received almost universal credit for the treatment, which, yes, was called the Dean Method. In the late 1970s, Catherine Waddell Takara 
professor of ethnic African-American and African studies at the University of Hawaii, stumbled upon the by then entirely overlooked Alice Ball and began an arduous campaign to learn more about her life and works. As she began to piece together the story out of the minuscule information available, she also began trying to right that wrong and find for Ball the credit she deserved. In the year 2000, she approached a research librarian at the university, Paul Wergmager, with a seemingly oddball question. Were there any Chalmugra trees on campus? The answer Wergmager eventually found was yes, there was one, and it had been donated to the university by the King of Siam in the 1930s, as thanks for the then-called Dean Method. Not anymore, though. Due to the efforts of just a small number of people, Takara and Wergmager in particular, Alice Ball has finally seen some of the recognition she deserves this century. In 2000, the governor of Hawaii designated an official holiday, Alice Ball Day, and dedicated a bronze plaque in her honor at the base of the university's gifted Chalmugra tree. In 2019, her name was carved onto the front of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, along with Marie Curie and Florence Nightingale. And today, if you Google Dean Method right now, you will see nothing but articles about Alice Ball. There's even talk of reversing the wrong. See, the university's Biological Sciences Building is named for its former dean and president, Arthur Dean. At least, it is for now. Someday soon, one hopes, it'll get the name it deserves. Ball Hall. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In 1816, Lord Byron composed a poem entitled 
personal, lyrical, and elegiac last leaving England. It started out like this. Is thy face like thy mother's, my fair child? Ada, sole daughter of my house and heart? When last I saw thy young blue eyes, they smiled, and then we parted, not as now we part, but with a hope, awaking with a start. The waters heave around me, and on high the wind lifts up their voices. I depart, whither I know not, but the hours gone by, when all beyond's lessening shores could grieve or glad mine eye. Byron's last leaving England commemorated his last leaving of England. By that time, he was one of the most famous and celebrated writers of his age, and also one of the most despised men. A year earlier, in 1815, he'd married Annabella Milbank, the Lady Byron, but she soon came to suspect, well, a, a lot of really terrible things about him, like that he was insane and having sexual affairs with several other women, including his half-sister, Augusta Lee. Almost exactly a year after their wedding, Lady Byron left him, and faced with an unceasing cavalcade of social and financial scandals, Lord Byron decided to flee the island, never to return. He left behind his only legitimate child, Ada, whose face he wonders about in last leaving England. He would never get an answer. She was but a month old when he set sail for Belgium, and just eight years old when he called for her and Lady Byron to come to his deathbed in Greece. They did not. From almost the moment Ada was born, Lady Byron feared that her father's madness and immorality would follow in her. When she herself was a child, she was tutored by William Friend, a former Cambridge professor who lost his position after he denounced the Church of England. He'd given Annabella a classical education, at which she'd excelled. Particularly, she'd loved mathematics. And now, faced with Hawthornian fears about her new daughter, she thought that math might be the perfect prophylactic antidote to Ada's nascent romanticism. It didn't work. Ada's life was marked by scandal much like her father's, and she tried to run away with one of the math tutors she was set up to study under. But while learning math did little to make her a good Georgian lady, it did make her... Make sure your socks are firmly on your feet here, because they might get knocked off. Good at math. Extremely, amazingly good at math. As a teenager, she earned the respect of some of the most prominent minds in England, including scientist Michael Faraday, author Charles Dickens, and, most importantly of all, mathematician Charles Babbage. More important than Dickens, you scoff, if you're me at least. But yes, certainly for Ada, and maybe for you and me too, because Babbage, as you'd know if you worked at a computer store named after him in high school, not talking about anybody in particular there, was the father of computing. In 1822, he'd begun working on what he came to call the difference engine, which, for simplicity's sake, was sort of like a gigantic mechanical calculator that could perform logarithmic and trigonometric functions. Despite drawing up detailed schematics which have gone on to produce working machines, Babbage himself never completed his difference engine, and by 1833, he was working on something even bigger, the analytical engine, the world's first Turing-complete computer. The analytical engine was to be roughly the size and shape of a large steam engine train car. 
A fitting analogy, since he envisioned it to be powered by a steam engine, since Ada's other friend Michael Faraday's work into electricity and electromagnetism was still in its early days, and the electrical engine not yet a glimmer in his eye. It would output results mainly via a printing press, with graphs to be drawn via a curve plotter and some other work potentially done by a ringing bell. The front of the train car would be taken up by what Babbage called the mill, which served basically the same function as a modern CPU, while the bulk of the length behind held the memory. Inputs would be given via punch cards, and through different configurations, all sorts of mathematical calculations could be done. I lack both the time and capacity to fully explain for you the brilliance of the analytical engine, and so did nearly everyone of Babbage's time. In fact, not even Babbage himself truly understood what he had designed. But Ada Byron did. The English establishment didn't get what Charles Babbage was up to practically at all, and his design for the analytical engine was pretty much ignored there. But in 1840, he was invited to explain his invention at the University of Turin. In attendance was Luigi Menabrea, a young engineer who would eventually become the seventh prime minister of Italy. At Turin, Menabrea transcribed Babbage's lecture and added his own notes, then published them in French. Babbage was intrigued, but he didn't read French, and neither would most of the English scientists who were ignoring him. He needed a translation made by someone who knew both French and math, and, preferably, someone who didn't have a career of their own. Someone like Ada. By then, Ada was married, no longer a Byron, but a Lovelace, and Ada Lovelace was more than happy to jump into the task. It took her over a year to translate Menabrea's work, in part because of just how fantastically complicated Babbage's analytical engine was, and more because, in the process of reading Menabrea's notes, she began to make her own. Sources vary on whether Ada Lovelace decided to amend the document or whether she was encouraged either by Babbage or his friend Charles Wheatstone, but regardless of the impetus, by the time she was done, her notes were longer than the source. And more valuable, too. Babbage thought that the main improvement of his analytical engine over his difference engine was that it could do more kinds of math, but Lovelace understood that it was so much more than that. In her notes, she wrote up an algorithm that, if punch carded into the engine, could spit out Bernoulli numbers. It was the first computer program ever written, and she envisioned more. To Babbage, numbers were numbers, but Lovelace recognized that numbers could represent any logical or systematic thing in the world. Letters, colors, even musical notes, and the engine might then be programmed to work with those things, performing word processing, drawing, even composing music. If Babbage was the father of computing, Lovelace was the mother of computer programming. Unfortunately, like the difference engine, Babbage never completed the analytical engine, and no one else had the interest or expertise to pick it up after him. So her ideas couldn't be tested, and her contributions fell dusty. And in spite of all her mother's efforts, she did fall into a path not far removed from her father. She became addicted to horse racing and lost a fortune to the habit. And she is rumored to have conducted a number of extramarital affairs, much like her father too. In 1852, she became ill with what was diagnosed as uterine cancer. 
On August 30th of that year, in ailing health, she made a confession to her husband. Whatever it was, he got up and left her there, in bed, without him, to die. Which she finally did, on November 27th, 1852. She was 36, the same age her father had been, when Lady Byron had ignored his deathbed plea. In 1839, the Magazine of Natural History published an extract of a letter that read, In reply to your request, I beg to say that the hooked tooth is by no means new. I believe that M. de la Beach described it 15 years since in the geological transactions. I am not positive. But I know that I then discovered a specimen with about a hundred palatal teeth and four of the hooked teeth, as I have since done several times with different specimens. I had a conversation with Agassiz on this subject. His remark was that they were the teeth by which the fish seized its prey, milling it afterwards with its palatal teeth. I am only surprised that he has not mentioned it in his work. We generally find the ichthyodorolites with them, as well as cartilaginous bones. The letter was dated April 7, 1839, and located to Lyme Regis, a town in West Dorset about 25 miles west of Dorchester. And although it's not particularly important, allow me to give you a bit of context. In the magazine, Edward Charlesworth had claimed the discovery of a new genus of prehistoric shark, which he attributed to Edmund Higgins, who brought him the hooked teeth that constituted the discovery. But the letter writer disagrees. No, there was nothing new in Higgins' fossils. The same hooked teeth had been discovered earlier, and the genus already named by ichthyologist Louis Agassiz, who called it Hybidus. Unless you're a paleontologist or an ichthyologist, the letter probably doesn't seem very important, a small question of who named what extinct fish first, but it's much more than that. There's a fascinating problem in paleontology. It is a science with a troubling limitation. It can only learn from what lasts. The odds that any animal will become preserved as a fossil are incredibly low, and there's every reason to suspect that the fossil record isn't uniform, that some kinds of specimens are more likely to be preserved than others, which might provide a skewed picture of the past. Most fossils, for instance, are formed in or near water, so animals that lived in or near water are overrepresented in the record. And, obviously, for fossils to form, the specimen almost always requires some sort of hard body, bone, or exoskeleton, meaning that invertebrates like worms or jellyfish are very rarely represented. Once you start thinking about it, though, you'll realize that the problem isn't at all unique to paleontology. In fact, ironically, the problem presents more conspicuously in paleontology, just like a bony fish fossil. Nearly any mode of thought that rests upon observation and deduction shares this difficulty. When you get right down to it, so does all of human experience. We don't know what we don't know. Which brings us back to that April 7th, 1839 letter, which is important not for what it says, but for just managing to exist. 
The letter is itself a sort of fossil, the rare kind formed under unlikely conditions that guarantee its underrepresentation, because it is the only published writing of one of the most important paleontologists of all time, Mary Anning. Before we talk about who Mary Anning was, we should look at when and where she was, because just like in paleontology, time and place are important factors for how stories live and how they are preserved. Anning was born in Lyme Regis on May 21, 1799, which put her in a prime position. Three years earlier, Georges Cuvier had written a paper in which he argued that fossilized, elephant-like remains found in North America belonged to a species which he later named Mastodon that no longer existed. This was a borderline heretical idea. Up until Cuvier, it was widely understood that the natural world was static, set into perfect balance by God and never altered. Lots of prominent folks at the time balked at Cuvier, including Thomas Jefferson, who believed, not implausibly, I suppose, that this mastodon could still be out there somewhere in the world as yet undiscovered by humanity. But Cuvier persisted in his argument, studying more mastodon fossils and more elephant bones and hardening his argument that they were separated by time. And it wasn't just mastodons. Cuvier identified giant ground sloths, woolly rhinos, mammoths, these were huge animals, bigger than any known creatures walking the earth. How could it be that they, of all things, were unseen? Cuvier introduced the idea of extinction to the world. And by the time Mary Anning was coming of age in Lyme Regis, the idea was becoming inescapable. At the same time, humans were embarking upon grand civil engineering plans, carving out long canals and digging out massive quarries. And when they did, they tended to find more evidence in support of Cuvier, fossils of animals they'd never seen before. There could be no paleontology without extinction. What would be the point of digging through the past if the past was no different from the present? But as soon as people understood that wasn't true, they had a whole lot of reason to go digging around. In the early 1800s, the word paleontology didn't exist yet, but the craze of the well-to-do, educated gentry going out looking for fossils was in full steam. That's an important needle thread, too. Fossil hunting was something respectable people did, but it wasn't yet itself a respectable thing, which meant that women were allowed to take part. Compared to the other hobbyist sciences that the European establishment were into at the time, like playing with electricity or trying to dissolve different metals, fossil hunting was a picnic, sometimes literally a picnic, that gentlemen could happily bring their wives along for. It's a really conspicuous amount of gender parity for the time. Hell, it'd be a conspicuous amount of gender parity for nearly any time. For every Charles Lyell, the first modern geologist, there was a Mary Elizabeth Lyell. For every William Buckland, who made the first description of a full dinosaur, there was a Mary Buckland. For every Dr. Gideon Mantell, credited with the discovery of the Iguanodon, a Marianne Mantell. There were even some women who weren't named Mary. But not our protagonist, Mary Anning. Mary Anning wasn't the wife of a famous scientist or a part of the cushy landed class, far from it. Her father was Richard Anning, a local carpenter and cabinet maker, and her mother was also named Mary, though she had the good sense to call herself Molly instead. No offense to you Marys out there, I'm just saying there's too much of a good thing, you know? 
What put Mary Anning in position to do what she did was literally her position. Lyme is directly on England's rocky southern coast, where the stormy seas had a way of kicking up and breaking loose the rock shore, revealing all manner of fossils and shells. It was the perfect place for a paleontological picnic, and the Anning home was built so close to the water that the same high waves that shuffled loose the stone also made their way inside and flooded the first floor. Alliteration quota met. Holy shit. Mary Anning's life story is checked with an amount of misfortune that truly beggars belief, and it starts right at the top. Mary wasn't named for her mother, Mary, who called herself Molly. She was named for her sister, Mary, the family's firstborn child who set herself on fire and died when she was four years old. In total, Richard and Molly had ten children, but only Mary and her older brother Joseph lived to be any older than the eldest sister. And Mary herself almost didn't. When she was just 15 months old, a traveling equestrian show rolled into line, and the whole town came out to see, including baby Mary. For some unknown reason, Mary wasn't with her parents, but was instead being held by a neighbor named Elizabeth Haskins as the galloping horses circled by and by and by, faster and faster, closer and closer. The thick din of clomping hooves, cracking whips, whooping riders and cheering fans was so pointed that the sound of a baby crying would be muffled out. And then, just as you must be fearing, and expecting, the unthinkable happened. Elizabeth Haskins was struck by lightning. Yeah, what is right? Haskins and two other women were killed instantly, and baby Mary only snapped back to life after being dumped in a hot bath. Now, for the briefest of breaks from tragedy. In addition to carpentry and cabinets, Richard also sold shells and fossils out of his shop to tourists, many of whom were brought to the oceanside looking for just such things. And from the time she was five or six, Mary would join him on his early morning fossil hunts. He taught her what to look for, how to clean and gently remove them. Until a bleak winter morning when Richard slipped on an icy slab of rock and right off a cliff. I told you it was brief. The fall didn't kill him, but he never recovered either. When Mary was 10, her father finally succumbed to a combination of injury and tuberculosis. Molly, Mary, and Joseph were left bereft, and soon learned that Richard had been in debt to the rough tune of around $150,000 American by today's rates. Debt that fell to them. Molly had always hated her husband's hobby and might have even felt vindicated on some level when he fell. The reason locals had luck selling fossils to tourists was mostly because the best time to find fossils was when the tourists weren't around. In winter, when the storms pounded the coastline, the shale and limestone would break up, exposing new fossils. But those same storms and shattering rock made the task unpleasant and dangerous, as we've already seen. Molly might not have liked her husband's hobby, but after his death, she needed the money. Joseph was 13 and began apprenticing with an upholsterer, but they needed more income than that. One morning, soon after Richard passed, Mary was carrying a small fossil down the street when a woman walked up and offered her half a crown for it. That gave Mary an idea, which, after seeing the money, her mother couldn't help agree to. 
they would set up a fossil shop in front of the beach house. By the time she was 12, Mary Anning was making a small but useful regular income, selling whatever she could find there. Fossils mostly, but also shells. A whole lot of sources will tell you that Mary Anning was the inspiration for that old tongue twister, she sells seashells by the seashore, but every trail I've followed trying to track that down has gone cold. I'm almost certain that it's bullshit, so don't tell people that's true. I'm begging you. It's impossible to disentangle Mary Anning's curiosity from her enterprise. How much did she pursue fossil hunting because of passion, and how much because of practicality? She certainly had plenty of each, but which was dominant at any given moment is like a Gordian knot. Take, for instance, the skull. In 1812, it was discovered at a newly exposed ledge at Churchcliff Beach. Which of the Anning children found it is hard to definitively say, but it seems most likely that Joseph spotted it first. But Joseph had more important things on his mind, or things his mind thought were more important at least, and didn't pay it much attention. Mary, on the other hand, saw something more in the skull. Exploration? Opportunity? Who knows? But whichever and in whatever proportions, Mary made a big gamble. The 13-year-old used the small amount of money she had to hire a team to help her dig out around the skull. The bet paid off in a big way for everyone. The ichthyosaur, or fish lizard, was a genus of large, long-snouted marine reptiles that went extinct approximately 90 million years ago. The first hint of their existence came with two vertebrae that were discovered in 1708 by Johann Schutzscher. But when he found them, he assumed they came from a giant human that was killed in Noah's flood. For the rest of the 18th century, people found a variety of ichthyosaur bones, and especially teeth, but without Georges Cuvier and the idea of extinction, they were all chalked up as belonging to dolphins, crocodiles, or sea lions. In 1804, an amateur zoologist named Edward Donovan found a few large pieces of an ichthyosaur, a jaw, a vertebrae, some ribs, but assumed they came from a large lizard. Other fossils found in the first decade of the 1800s were combined haphazardly with whatever fossils were on hand, resulting in a series of nearly incoherent chimeras. The ichthyosaur that Mary Anning exhumed from Churchcliffe was almost totally complete and it ignited a firestorm. Anning's ichthyosaur was the clearest proof science had ever seen that Cuvier's extinction hypothesis was right. What was it? A fish? A reptile? Maybe it was related to the platypus, which was the sort of thing 19th century people tossed out whenever they didn't understand something? The ichthyosaur became known around the world, but not Mary Anning. She had sold it for 23 pounds, approximately 1,750 pounds adjusted for inflation. It had been purchased by Henry Host Henley. Oh no, now we're heading into alliteration overdrive, who in turn sold it to William Bollock, an antiquarian who displayed it at Piccadilly Egyptian Hall, a private museum he'd recently completed. Two years later, Bullock resold it to the British Museum for a cool 45 pounds. Not one of them gave credit to Mary. This would be the pattern which repeated again and again. In 1823, she made a discovery even more momentous than the ichthyosaur, but not unrelated. 
See, in the pre-anning world, ichthyosaur fossils had often been found near or among other unrelated fossils, which partly explained why the early attempts to reconstruct them led to hodgepodge mongrels. But in 1821, two of Anning's clients, who she considered friends, Henry de la Beach and William Coneybear, had come to realize that there were parts of another animal mixed in with some ichthyosaur fossils they were examining, some flattened vertebrae and a broken jaw with conical teeth. They didn't have enough to make hide nor hair of what it might have looked like, but they gave it a name anyway, Plesiosaurus, meaning near to reptile. Who knew what this near-to-reptile might be, though? In 1823, Mary Anning found out. She discovered a complete plesiosaurus skeleton, and however much the ichthyosaur might have shocked, the plesiosaur did double. By then, Mary Anning was growing frustrated. The fossil shop was a decent business, but unreliable. There were years when the family would have to sell off their own furniture just to keep fed. Meanwhile, she knew men of luxury were getting rich putting their names to her work. It's not that they were disrespectful, at least not all of them. Plenty of the people who came to Lyme were absolutely charmed by her. Some, like Henry de la Beach, she even considered friends. In 1820, when the Annings were having a particularly hard go of it, one of their clients, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas James Birch, had organized an auction for them. He sold off all the pieces he had bought from Mary over the years and gave her the profits. He wrote to another of Mary's clients, Gideon Mantell, to say, I may never again possess what I am about to part with. Yet in doing it, I shall have the satisfaction of knowing that the money will be well applied. But when push came to shove, even those kindest to Mary didn't think to give her credit. Her name didn't appear on any plaques or papers, and though by the 1820s she was essentially one of the prime benefactors of the Geological Society of London, she was never even allowed inside. She was just a girl, a poor, uneducated girl, gifted and clever for her station, and keen at rustling through the beach for bones, but that was all. Mary fumed. She had learned to read and write at the Congregationalist Church when she was little, and she now used those skills to teach herself everything she could about this new science, which was on the verge of being called paleontology. When she discovered that the most important figure in the field was Georges Cuvier, and that Georges Cuvier wrote in French, she taught herself French to read him. So, it must have been particularly galling when Cuvier pronounced her plesiosaurus a fake. Its neck was too long. It had too many vertebrae. The preeminent French scientist assumed that some riffraff, some con man, was pulling one over on the gullible and inept British scientists. Maybe she'd taken the neck of a sea snake and joined it to an ichthyosaur. He wrote Coney Bear to warn him he might be being had. In January of 1824, the Geological Society of London held a special meeting to determine whether the plesiosaur was real. Mary was not invited. Still, by the end of the night, they'd vindicated her. Eventually, even Cuvier admitted that he'd been wrong. Mary Anning's reputation was saved, but credit for her plesiosaurus still went to Coney Bear, not her. Even as others stole the glory, Mary continued finding more. She discovered that the ovular stones known as bazaars, reputed to be magical antidotes, were actually fossilized poop. She told her friend and client William Buckland, who renamed them Copperlites, and gave her no credit. In 1829, she wrote to Buckland to alert him to a new find. 
It was a nearly complete dinosaur, which looked a lot like one that had been found in Bavaria back in 1784. But hers was more complete, and that completeness revealed something extraordinary. It had wings. It was a pterosaur. Cuvier himself had hypothesized that pterosaurs might be flying reptiles, but he couldn't prove it, and it seemed too astonishing a thing to put to print. But Mary Anning's find made it clear. Buckland named it Pterodactylus macronix, and for the first and only time, he gave Anning written credit for its discovery. Things were finally taking a turn. Though still not officially accepted by any scientific society and barely recognized in any official journals, Mary Anning was nevertheless famous and respected by scientists all around the world. They wrote to her with praise and with questions. It should have been a time of celebration, but Mary Anning had bigger issues. 1830 brought a bad economic downturn in England, and the beaches of Lyme were giving up fewer and fewer fossils for her to sell. Seeing her friend and frequent undocumented collaborator was in trouble, Henry de la Beach came up with an idea. He commissioned his friend George Scharf to make a watercolor depicting Dorset at the time of Mary Anning's many discoveries. Scharf produced Duria Antiquior, a more ancient Dorset, that same year. It's a busy and enthralling painting, showing the English coast as a primeval sea with fantastic creatures, red in tooth and claw, fighting, fleeing, feeding, flying. Oh no, it's alliteration overload. Hit the emergency breaker. Whew. Duria Antiquior is the first ever example of what is commonly called paleo art, an artistic attempt to depict the prehistoric world. The whole genre descends from Scharf's watercolor, and every creature in Scharf's watercolor was discovered by Mary Anning. De La Biche sold lithographs of Duria Antiquior to the creme de la creme of European scientific society and donated every last cent to Mary Anning. By the end of the year, she'd discovered her last big find, a new species of plesiosaur. But again, the money dried up when a local investor either ran off with her money or up and died with it. It's not clear which. But either way, by 1835, Mary Anning was penniless. Worse still, she'd nearly been caught in a landslide while out collecting, and it had buried her best friend, a black-and-white terrier named Trey, right in front of her. She wrote a friend to say, Perhaps you will laugh when I say that the death of my old faithful dog has quite upset me. The cliff that fell upon him and killed him in a moment before my eyes and close to my feet, it was but a moment between me and the same fate. William Buckland organized a pension for her through the British Association for the Advancement of Science, but soon after Anning fell sick with breast cancer. Between the cancer and the laudanum she was prescribed to deal with it, she grew weaker and less able to sell, let alone find, new fossils. She died on March 9, 1847. Her obituary was carried in the Quarterly Journal of the Geological Society of London, who also donated a stained-glass window to her church. It was an unprecedented honor. Only members of the society were ever honored in the journal's pages. But Henry de la Biche wrote it anyway. Still, credit for her work and influence was slow in coming. 
Paleontology books written well into the 1970s describe her as a low-class woman of no particular talent who was lucky enough to make a small living through the good fortune of being around such great men as Buckland, De La Beach, and Coney Bear. It wasn't until May 21st, 2022, that a campaign started by an 11-year-old girl in Dorset succeeded in getting a statue of Mary Anning dedicated in Lyme Regis. In it, Mary Anning strides down a hill towards the rocks she searched every day. She carries a basket and a geologist's hammer, and wears a bonnet and look of pleased determination. Her beloved terrier, Trey, bounds alongside her. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound. Special thanks go out to everyone who supports the making of this show, especially Joe Giovanoli, Rebecca Fitchett, Allie Olmsted, Mikey G, Isaiah Hastings, Tom Ramsey, Logan Houlihan, Feed, Randy Savage, Wendy Kellner, and Summer Thoman. If you want to join them and get access to the Secret Feed, which now features not only monthly bonus stories, but also ad-free and hopefully early episodes, Go to patreon.com slash the constant to sign up or rate and review the show wherever you listen and tell a friend. There are obviously a metric shit ton of stories that fit today's theme, but I am trying to not drown you and me in any more multi-parters right now. So I will be back to Cassandra's somewhere down the line, but in two weeks we will have something different. Until then, from Chicago, Illinois, where there is only one proper statue in all our city parks representing a historical woman, Gwendolyn Brooks, and it was only unveiled four years ago, this has been The Constant. spent a majority of our time talking about the mistakes of dead white men, in part because of how many consequential mistakes they've been allowed to make, and in part because someday I hope to be one of them. But this week, should I say hope to be one of them? <laughs> that sounds a little fucking glum, doesn't it? <laughs>